Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ned Sublet continue the Latin Roll miniseries based on Ned's classic book, Cuba and Its Music, From the First Drums to the Mambo. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time for the roll, or should I say Latin roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined by Ned Sublet to continue our discussion of his book, Cuba and Its Music, The First Drums to the Mambo. Ned, welcome back. Thanks. Hello, people in Podland. And before we start talking about 19th century Cuba, tell us a little bit about your trip to 21st century New York that you're guiding and conducting. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I uh, run a company called Post Mambo Studies, and we do musical immersion travel. Most of what we've done has been to Cuba, and we've done a number of Cuba trips. We went to Colombia last August, and I just got back from taking 40 people to New Orleans. And in June, we're going to do a five-day musical immersion intensive in New York City, post-Mambo Gotham, the New York most New Yorkers don't know, visiting Afro-Diasporic music communities all around the uh, boroughs of New York City. Well, that'll be fun. And so... um... Make sure everybody has the information. Is there any other contact information we can give people so they can get in touch with you if they'd like to join? We do it all by email. No website, no social media, none of that. Info at postmambo.com. P as in Peter, O, S as in Sam, T-M-A-M-B-O.com. Postmambo.com. All right. Email it, make the trip, or snooze and lose. So, Ned, Thanks for making that available to our listeners. Now, let's get into 19th century Cuba. So we, we ended last time talking about the Brits, the brief British rule over Cuba. I don't know if it was even a formal rule, but a period where they pretty much went in and changed everything and unleashed massive demographic changes that would continue throughout the 19th century. Can you just refresh everybody? What's the big deal that's going on in Cuba in the 19th century? Okay, well, really, we're talking talking about the 19th or the 18th, Um, because the the 18th and then the changes take over the British takeover of Havana, which lasted about 10 months, was part of the uh, the uh, what was worldwide called the Seven Years War. It was in the war that in the U.S. is often referred to as the French and Indian War, referring to the domestic part of it. But this was a world war that uh, some people consider it the first world war uh, that 
uh, ended with the uh, with a lot of territory switching. That's when uh, Louisiana went into uh, Spanish hands instead of French hands. But during this time, for 10 months, the British took over Havana. And what they did was uh, they brought in a whole free market kind of uh, free importation ideology for the for the for the uh, planters and merchants of the city so they did a lot better under the british than they had under the spanish and when the british withdrew and spain took back over this uh new mentality was well entrenched and the bourbons in spain were also loosening up their trade policies as a result so after 1762 you start to see uh an increased flow of uh, Africans, captive Africans to Cuba. This is really the beginning of the sugar industry in Cuba big time. In fact, Hugh Thomas, who wrote this um, numbingly thorough book about Cuba, a history of Cuba called Cuba, the Pursuit of Freedom, doesn't even bother with Cuba before 1762. Of course, he's British, so I guess he thought that Cuba began when the British took it over, uh, but uh, as if uh, previous to 1762 and Cuba didn't exist. But if you're talking about the Cuba's participation in the world market as a player in sugar, certainly it does begin then. And then this kicks up to a whole other level after the Haitian Revolution overnight takes out Saint-Domingue as a producer of sugar. And in fact, there are... Uh, people from Cuba in the Spanish military who go over to Saint-Domingue and steal the, the uh, French sugar processing equipment and bring it back to Cuba. Ada Ferrer, uh, who won the Pulitzer Prize last year, has uh, a wonderful book called Freedom's Mirror that talks about the paradox of how the end of slavery in Saint-Domingue slash Haiti was the beginning of the giant growth of slavery in Cuba. And this lasted well into the 19th century. Uh, of course, the African, Cuba would be the last place to end the African slave trade. And that was only in the 1860s with the uh, changes occasioned by the U.S. Civil War. And so these two or really three trends that you've, you've been discussing have some musical outcomes as well. There's something called the contradance or the contradanza that... Uh, becomes even more famous as the habanera. Tell us about this. That it, it's it's a mix up of the French contra dance, the Spanish fandango, English country dancing. What's the contra dance? Why is it a big deal in nineteenth century Cuba? The contra dance is a fascinating topic. It's I I mean I wish I could just I wish I had enough time in my life that I could just stop for two or three years and research the contra dance in its global manifestations. The contra dance was a major dance of the 19th century. It's danced from, uh, and was beginning in the 18th and well into the 19th, danced from, you know, New Orleans to Russia. And uh, it's, it's with us still in myriad forms, which I would argue even uh, you could stretch to say might include reggaeton. Um, the contra dance, it was uh, a dance of two, lines, two files, a cousin to American square dancing, in fact. And with time, the contra dance 
took on uh, various other. Um, there, there were very how to put it. There were derivations of the contradance. The contradance became the contrabanza, as it was called in the Spanish-speaking territories, um, became the danza, which was apparently a couple's dance rather than a line dance, and then that in turn, toward the end of the 19th century, would morph into the danzón, uh, which was the leading form of Cuban music at the beginning of the 20th century, and which is still with us today, uh, especially in Mexico, where there's still a huge uh, uh, culture of danzón in um, and salons that uh, where people go to dance danzón more in Mexico than in Cuba, but you could and you will still hear uh, danzones in the work of Cuban jazz musicians today. There was no specific rhythm that was the contradanza. The contradanza could be uh, could be in triple time, could be in duple time, but what it did have. Uh, what came to characterize this whole style in Cuba, where the professional musician class was almost entirely free people of color, was a rhythm. Yes, the rhythm that became branded in the 19th century as abanera, boom, 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 which is the Antillean beat that's been bouncing around for centuries now, and it's still the Antillean beat when I mentioned the reggaeton earlier. Boom, 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 boom. It's not that. It's not reggaeton. That is the old abanera. You could make a mashup of Carmen's abanera from Bizet's Carmen, uh, which has that rhythm. With um, you know, there are Bad Bunny tracks you could uh, mash up with Carmen, and it would probably work. Uh, this rhythm's just been 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 in uh, Jamaica, Cuba. You name it, it's it's there, and it's still there today. So that rhythm, which is also really versatile, because you can, um, depending on how you orchestrate it, it can be boom, 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 or it can be boom, 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 depending on which drums you assign to it. And you can hear already just from those cells I vocalized, uh, thousands of pop hits uh, into the present day that have them. This comes into our our music at this time. And let's go ahead and hear um, Bizet's Carmen's Carmen. This is a Havanera Paso Ados, a dance for two, performed by the Orchestra della Suisse Romande, directed by Thomas Shippers. was a habanera a dance for two by george bizet from the uh, opera carmen directed by thomas shippers performed by the orchestra della suisse Romande. and yeah the habanera the contra dance and there's also a character that comes up in your chapters uh on, on cuba in this period that 
I guess inspired the chapter title Buying Whites and Selling Blacks. Tell us about this Pancho Marty character. And- Pancho Marty. Yeah, he was uh, he was a fishmonger um, and a slave trader who was uh, very close to General Tacon, and he became a he was he was the uh, the, the financial power uh, of the time, and he uh, by by virtue of his his the buying whites and selling blacks was a uh, obvious re- uh, phrase from the time that referred to his practice of uh, corrupting officials and importing uh, captive Africans. He outfitted the finest opera company in the hemisphere, an Italian opera company in Havana. There were a lot of reasons why you would want to have an an opera company that would come to Havana for a long period of time because uh, the, uh, the transatlantic uh, trip was long and difficult. And if you were importing stellar talent, as he did, it had to be a long contract to make sense. Unfortunately, in the summer, you couldn't do anything because it was too damn hot. And those are the peak months for yellow fever. Uh, so Pancho Marti wound up uh, taking his uh, expensive troop, the, by all accounts, the finest opera company of the few that were the, that there were in the hemisphere, better than the one in New York, uh, to on tour in the United States, uh, where they caused a sensation in New York City. Uh, the and this the, this tour was repeated, and the the fame of the Havana Opera Company was uh, was international. There were at that time three opera companies in the in the hemisphere: uh, Havana, New Orleans, and uh, New York. New Orleans, of course, had opera in French instead of Italian opera. And tell us about the role of opera in popular culture in the 19th century. I think people in the 21st century see opera as something sort of hopelessly highfalutin and sophisticated, and you know, above our pay grade. But in the 19th century, this is really kind of the music of the people. Yeah, I first got a, a sense of that when I was a student. In 1969, I was 18, and I managed to spend the summer in Italy on a North Carolina School of the Arts program, God bless them, uh, which didn't cost very much money. Uh, I mean, it was in, this kind of thing was in the within the reach of a a student of modest means in those days. And as part of it, we went to the Verona Arena and saw a production of Puccini's Turandot. And the entire arena is singing along the operas. I mean, the arias. And I'm talking about, you know, the cab drivers, the housekeepers in the hotel. Everyone knew the arias. It was popular culture. It was more like going to a baseball game than like going to an opera as we know it. So if you think of that as the model for how things were in the 19th century, pretty much everywhere opera was done, you'd be about right. Also operas were, these, the operas were, were, were uh, often composed very quickly, often in response to current events, um, and were staged as spectacles, lots of spectacle, are you, famously, you know, the elephants in Verdi's Aida. Um, the the and they would have um, they would perform an act and then have a tightrope walker or jugglers or uh, it was a 
a whole a whole evening's worth of uh, social um, intrigue and diversion, as well as what was going on on stage. And this, in this same particular period of time, there's something called the conspiracy of the ladders, the conspiracion de la escalera, that made it very hard to outfit a dance group, a dance orchestra in Cuba, because so many of the musicians of color were imprisoned over this conspiracy, and that kind of created an opening for the Italian opera through this vacuum. Tell us about this conspiracy, the ladders, and how did Pancho Marti capitalize on it? Too? The, 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 the Escalera conspiracy, actually, I'm, uh, I'm looking it up in the book right now so I can say it correctly. Here we go. Uh, page 139. Uh, slave up, basically, slave uprisings had become more and more frequent. When a new, cons- quote, when a new conspiracy was detected in 1844 in Matanzas, the governmental reaction was violent. In the repression that followed, hundreds were killed and at least a thousand more thrown into prison or expelled from the island. The episode became known as La Conspiración de la Escalera, the ladder conspiracy, because the authorities tied to a ladder the hands and feet of those they flogged, an old favored torture in San Domingue. It was accompanied by new laws that restricted the movements of free people of color. The colored bourgeoisie was devastated by the repression. The black and mulatto middle class were targeted for torture in prison, where many of them stayed for years. Uh, the poet Placido was executed after four months in prison. This is a famous moment in um, Cuban literary history, maybe roughly analogous to Garcia Lorca being murdered by Franco's forces um, some 80 years later. And the circumstances of his death by firing squad reported internationally. Havana orchestra leader and contravanza composer Tomas Vuelta y Flores was tortured and subsequently died. The career of the violinist and contrabassist Claudio Brindis de Salas was cut short by prison, etc. So there was a, uh, this conspiracy, of course, did, was not only, um, did not only, uh, this, this, prosecution of a repression of the conspiracy, I should say, did not only target enslaved people, of course, but prominently tar- targeted free people of color and the, uh, the, the black bourgeoisie of the day. So that this put a tremendous dent in Cuban music, which uh, was uh, largely played by free people of color. Yeah, there's no way to escape uh, the macro realities of this time. Let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is called The Anonymous. Um, this is a Cuban contradanza published in 1813, one of the oldest known. This was arranged for string quartet, guitar, and harpsichord by, harpsichord by Juan Jose Prat Ferrer. That was the anonymous a Cuban contradanza published in 1813, one of the oldest known. Uh, 
originally written for piano. This is arranged for string quartet, guitar, and harpsichord by Juan Jose Pratt Ferrer. And so we've got this period of time where there's some opportunities for Cuban musicians, but obviously um, if things go a little wrong, things can go really wrong. And and that had devastating impact on the the cultural producers on the island. But something else is going on around this time, and that's the Kukoye, which comes into Havana, but it's been rolling along for decades in the eastern part in San Diego de Cuba and introduces the Cinquillo rhythm. Tell us about this development and, and how it migrated from Haiti all the way to Havana. Yeah, the Kukoye was a uh, popular song. Kukoye is a coconut. It might not be quite accurate to say it introduced the Cinquillo rhythm because the Cinquillo rhythm was there, uh, but it certainly popularized it. And it did make its way from the east of Cuba, which was the uh, stronghold of people with roots in San Domingue slash Haiti, to some decades later to the west of Haiti, uh, west of Cuba where it became, uh, for a while, a very popular song, and where this rhythm seems to have taken hold and rooted in the, uh, in the music culture of all of Cuba. And how does the clave um, work into, this, into these rhythm patterns and, and song forms? Well, I, my feeling about clave, my thinking about how clave becomes so important in Cuban music is by degrees that is this is it is something that was you can detect its um you can detect it in the its its imprint in the earliest published music but over the years over the decades and even centuries as the african component of cuban music becomes more explicit and comes more to the fore the sense of clave becomes stronger and stronger, really uh, coming fully out in the 1940s with Arsenio Rodriguez. Uh, clave is a two-bar uh, undulation. You know, it's usually expressed as bop, 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 but it's not a beat. It's a template. It's a rhythmic key. So that if the clave is bop, 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 bop. That's equivalent to saying rum, pam, bop, If you hear that, you know that's the same as saying bop, 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 bop. It has to do with where the accents and the spaces are. Okay. And this tells, this is a two bar pattern. And what the clave does is tell you which way that undulation points. So if somebody's going bop, 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 you cannot go bop, 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 bop against it. That's just, well, you could, but you'd have to resolve it. You'd have to make sense out of it ultimately because it doesn't fit like that. It fits like bop, 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 rather than bop, 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 bop. If you play it backwards, right, you'll get thrown out the window. You'll, everything, everything will stop. Uh, the dancers will look at you, look daggers at you, and you'll be fired from your job immediately. So it's really important to know which way the clave is pointing. Now, I say it's a two-bar phrase. There are also one-bar rhythms, which are transparent with respect to the clave. 
some of the instruments in the orchestra play just one bar patterns. So uh, the the cinquillo, pop, 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 is a one bar pattern, right? So you can, and you can, uh, you can fit it on either side of the clave. So if you got bum, 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 within that, you can fit bum, 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 bum. And it makes sense on either side. Usually, if you see a salsa band, what the conguero, the basic thing the conguero plays, bum, bum, or whatever he's playing, uh, is uh, transparent with respect to the clave. So that uh, he's keeping the time going, but not necessarily showing you where the clave is. Uh, whereas other instruments may be. All of which is to say that um, the clave is a way of taking all of this polyrhythmic information and making it fit together like a glove as Bobby Bird, James Brown's music director, said of funk with, with of polyrhythms and funk. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and, and your analogy to the harmonic key, you know, like the key of C or whatever, I think is a really good one. That, that you know, musicians, Western musicians who've learned harmony know that if, if you're in a certain key, you can play certain notes. And, and there's other notes that if you're going to play, you're going to have to play third notes to bring them back into that harmony. And the, and the clave is the org- overall organizing principle for the polyrhythm. So even though you're exactly. playing polyrhythms, there are some rhythms exactly. you can't play. Yeah. So if you're in the key of C, if you're in the key of C, you don't suddenly start playing a, a measure in F sharp unless you're, of course, wanting to play a dissonance against the C. But if you, you stay in the, in the tones that are most common to C most of the time, or you build away from them and back to them, but you hear everything in, in relation to C. Similarly with the clave, you, you can play rhythmic dissonances, but you hear everything in relationship to where the clave is. Yeah, and so if you play something that's out of beat, you gotta you gotta resolve it and bring it back into the beat. And let's take a quick right. break and our sponsors. When we come back, we're gonna talk about the most famous 19th century American musician, and I bet you can't guess who he is. Uh, my favorite. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right. So, Ned, tell us about the most popular 19th century American musician, and why is it that we talked about him in our New Orleans discussion, and now we're talking about him in the Cuba discussion? What's the connection? Who was he? And how did he get around so much? Louis Moreau Gottschalk, my favorite. Uh, Gottschalk was the first great American concert pianist, the first great American concert attraction um, in the age of P.T. Barnum. Uh, previously, the... Uh, concert attraction the great concert uh, stars had been european um and also arguably the great 19th century u.s composer uh one problem with gottschalk's playing gottschalk's work today is well of course as with everything else before recording we don't know exactly how it sounded we have lots and lots of notes because he wrote and published quite a bit but that even those notes don't tell us what he did live because he was a pianist of spectacular abilities by all accounts. And he undoubtedly embellished this music in all sorts of ways. He was apparently very charismatic. Um, I'll tell you a story. I, uh, I've been trying to get Chucho Valdez to play Gottschalk for years because I feel like he's one person who whose technical ability and whose sense of spontaneity and improvisation are enough to make to give it that sense of freedom and play that it needs. A lot of the recordings of Gottschalk are by classical musicians who tend to play it rather dutifully, you know, but I wanted somebody who had this more this sense of, of, of fun. And I got Chucho the scores and after about a year, uh, he said, "Mandame los papeles, you know. Send me the send me the papers, you know." So I, I sent him a sent him a volume of of Gottschalk's piano scores. About a year later, I saw him. I said, "What's what's happening with that?" He said, "That stuff is hard." Chucho <laughs> Valdez, right? <laughs> that stuff is hard. Uh, uh, not that he couldn't play it, but uh, it would be uh, yeah, it's a lot of work uh, to play Gottschalk, and then to play it freely, um, you got to really want to do it. And there isn't really 
a major interpreter of Gottschalk in our time. My Probably my favorite recordings that I've heard are those by Leonard Panario. Tom McDermott turned me on to them. Uh, but I, there isn't really anybody right now who's going around making a career out of playing Gottschalk. And um, I keep thinking someone will arise. Gottschalk was, of course, um, descended from um, the from Saint-Domingue. And uh, his, um, he was born in New Orleans. And at the, by the age of 18, he was already in uh, Europe. He studied with uh, Hector Berlioz. The uh, composer who, uh, the French composer who specialized in mass sonorities with enormously large orchestras, uh, Gottschalk uh, began doing this to the famous monster concerts, where <laughs> there might be 600 participants making a sound that you simply cannot record. You have to be there to hear it. Um, and Gottschalk uh, famously. Uh, went to Cuba, where he befriended um, Manuel Saumel, Nicolas Espadero, and uh, the young Jose White, who would uh, become the most distinguished Cuban violinist and composer of his day. And had uh, his, uh, his memoirs, Notes of a Pianist, is well worth reading. And let's go ahead and hear um, some Gottschalk. This is Bambula by Louis Moreau Gottschalk. Bambola by Louis Moreau Gottschalk. And you said this is the track where um, he moves the habanera beat to the bass. No, no, no. Um, this no, is, no. That, that would be Ojos Criollos, uh, Danse Cubain, uh, published in 1860. Bambola, which was composed when he was 18, seems to be a, uh, a kind of a clue as to what you might hear at Congo Square in a very uh, roundabout way, a very stylized way. Uh, Donald Harrison recently said to me, that's not New Orleans music. Um, and no, it's not New Orleans music. It's a concert take on something that did go on in New Orleans. So it's a, uh, it's got the bum, 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 There's the Abanera rhythm, right? Bum, 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 bum. The the musical theme is a, uh, a folk song from Saint Domingue, and in the opening part, the bump, bump, you hear the implication of drums. Um, that uh, who knows what we actually heard at Congo Square, but he's telling us something. And Bambula, of course, was the uh, uh, one of famously one of the African descended dances that was danced at Congo Square. Now, at, this was before he went to Cuba, though. And after he went to Cuba, um, he heard 
what was going on there where they had taken that habanera and again those three people of color who made up the dance orchestras were putting that rhythm in the bass so in ojos criollos you have a bass line that goes boom 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 and that has a modern sound to it in fact if you listen to ojos criollos published in 1860 in new orleans where Gottschalk no longer lived uh, it sounds very much like ragtime, right? But ragtime doesn't really appear for another 35 years. The Civil War intervenes. I'd like to speculate that, you know, had the Civil War not happened, which, of course, is an impossible thing to think. We don't do contrafactuals. But uh, had there not been this interruption to everything, perhaps, uh, the ragtime boom would have happened a lot sooner because it seems like the musical elements were already there in 1860. Certainly in Gottschalk, we seem to hear them. And uh, 35 years later, when the ragtime boom happens, uh, it traces back to things that were going on in Cuba in the 1850s with this, um, and especially with this boom, 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 boom rhythm. That's fascinating stuff. I want tell us a little bit more about these monster orchestra performances and and what Berlioz was doing in Paris, and how Gottschalk built on that, and how he incorporated African drums in his symphonies. I believe for the first time ever. Yeah, well, uh, certainly in concert music, you know, uh, the they did not put black people playing drums up in front of a concert orchestra. That simply was not done for uh, many, many uh, people who were fans of the symphonic music of the day. The drumming of black people was not even music, right? And then this prejudice goes on, well, it goes on into the present day, but, you know, we see in, uh, in the 20th century when recording happens, they record um, music with stringed instruments, but the rumba, the all-percussive rumba is not recorded until the 1940s, and that was in New York, uh, because it simply was not considered music. Um, so for Gottschalk, but Gottschalk could hear it, and Gottschalk knew this was music, and he put, uh, he put black drummers in front of the biggest symphony orchestra anyone had ever seen. It was in an enormous uh, feat of casting, an enormous feat of orchestration. And um, I'm looking, I'm actually looking at uh, Vernon Loggins, just to give you a sense of how big some of these concerts were. This is a different concert, but uh, this is Vernon Loggins' description. Um, the, the, this is uh, April 17th, 1861, at a monster concert in Havana in the Teatro Tacon, um, largest theater in the Americas, one of the largest theaters in the world, uh, built with Pancho Marti's money. Um, the uh, program opened with the performance of a one-act comedy. The first musician heard was Gottschalk's star pupil, Senorita Carrere, who, <clears throat> who performed before the curtain, as did Gottschalk, who followed her with three or four minutes of improvisation. <coughs> Sorry. 
He was still thrilling the audience with his roulades and trills when the curtain rose, revealing 39 pianos, a performer standing before each. With Gottschalk playing and also conducting, the ensemble gave his Ojos Criollos and another Cuban dance, which he had recently completed. Gottschalk was called before the curtain so many times that the Orchestra of Vocal Soloists and Chords, 500 altogether, had replaced the pianos when he made his last bow and the stage was again revealed. Closing the first half of the program, Gottschalk conducted La Nuit des Tropiques, his uh, monster concert orchestra piece, and the hymn in March from Charles Mein. In the second half of the program, there were only two numbers, Meul's descriptive symphony, La Chasse Royale, with trumpeters playing echoes in all parts of the theater. The second was a military fantasy compiled by Gottschalk and conducted by the bandmaster to His Excellency, the Captain General of the Colony of Cuba. So you can see the scale these concerts uh, took place on, how long they were, how massive were the sonorities. And uh, you can also pretty easily imagine the size of the public that they attracted because of course everyone was somehow involved in this production and this is definitely a 19th century phenomenon this is something that they've really never recreated since then they've never no recorded berlots and and Gottschalk's monster orchestras have definitely not been recreated since then no i know you do see uh berlioz music is a, a staple in um, symphony programming, but it's always a big undertaking, and the orchestras they use are usually smaller than the ones uh, Berlioz would have. Berlioz's memoirs are also pretty interesting, by the way. When he he talks about, you know, going into a town, a town in Italy where they're going to perform that night and trying to find eight Ophioclides. Eight what? (laughs) Ophioclides. What what was called it? I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right. it's not a word we say out loud very often these days. O p h i c l e i d e. This is the uh, the instrument that in Spanish was called a figle, and it was uh, sort of a baritone horn. And sorry, apologies for the pauses. My dog is barking, and my mute button is as as recalcitrant. And so, dog's gonna bark. Gotcha. It's, do- it's, it's, it's the dog's job to bark. That's right. He's keeping us safe. So, Gottschalk's Born and raised in New Orleans, trained in Paris, reaches his apogee maybe as a performer in Cuba, later dies performing in Brazil, famously, uh, I guess he had finished the piece called Mort um, when, when he died. But did his work get digested by the European cognoscenti, like, or, or because he was in Cuba and South America for most of the 1860s, did his work not ever really get its due and get get understood by the you know the leading thinkers in Europe. Well, he was certainly his music was certainly known in Europe from his student days on. Bambula was dedicated to Queen Isabel II, uh, and uh, Berlioz and the, the 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 big men in France were certainly aware of him, and he was a top concert attraction in the United States. So he was extremely famous in his own day. I mean, this is the great age of piano soloists. This is a very interesting moment in music. Uh, And I have yet to see a real treatment of this. I like to live long enough to have enough time to just explore all of these uh, issues. The 
well, I call them the piano nationalists. You know, they uh, in every country with the mass production of pianos and the dissemination of sheet music, uh, as music engraving becomes able to, uh, as, as the art of printing becomes able to handle music engraving and we start to see mass, mass distributed scores in people's piano benches. I myself learned to play music, uh, taking sheet music out of a piano bench in Lubbock, Texas, uh, not so much from records. Uh, that was how people learned music in the 19th century. Gottschalk's music was very widely distributed in sheet music. So people all across the United States, the amateurs uh, would sit at home uh, playing these uh, fiendishly difficult, but nonetheless intriguing pieces. And there's just no doubt that uh, the influence of Gottschalk shows up in, for example, I mentioned earlier ragtime. I mean, Scott Joplin had to know Gottschalk. It's unthinkable that he wouldn't have. It's unthinkable that Scott Joplin wouldn't have known that sheet music because it was very widely distributed at a time when the piano had become a mass medium for the diffusion of music. In the um, in the intervening years, though, uh, it seems that we have kind of forgotten our great national composer of the 19th century. I would say that's a fair assessment. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't even know the guy existed. So, um, you know, thanks for and keeping it's the... It's so great. The music is great. Yes. I, we recently, you know, I mentioned I took a group to New Orleans. We went out to Acadiana for a day, and uh, we heard from Louis Michaud and Michaud's Melody Makers, a uh, basically a Cajun-based, uh, I don't know if I call them an experimental music group, but a... Uh, a Cajun-based uh, group that uh, played a version of Gottschalk's Souvenir to Puerto Rico, which uh, Louis Michaud was never so um, flattered. Louis said he'd learned about Gottschalk from reading Cuban and its music, investigated, found the score, and uh, Souvenir de Puerto Rico, de Puerto Rico, it's P-O-R-T-O in Gottschalk's uh, title, uh, turned out just great in their instrumentation. That's really cool. And let's go ahead and hear a little more Gottschalk since uh, I misintroduced La Bambula as the one with the habanero on the baseline. Let's hear it actually. This is the Ojos Criollos from That's the Gottschalk. And that was Ojos Criollos. Criollos. Sorry. Can you imagine that played by 39 pianos at once? I know. I mean, it would make Phil Spector look like an absolute piker. I, I would love to hear a recreation of that. Like you said, it, it wouldn't be possible to Dan record Spector, it. You would have to. I used to work with Glenn Branca, who was a composer who worked with uh, massed electric guitar sonorities. And That's I feel great. like one of the things. One of the things I managed to do was get him to go hear Berlioz. Oh, wow. Talk about worlds colliding. The the mentor of Sonic Youth checking out Berlioz. 
Um, tell us about some of these uh, pianists that Gottschalk met and interacted with and influenced in Cuba, like Manuel Samuel. Manuel Salmel was the uh, the uh, the great uh, composer of danzas of, of, in his day of of, of uh, in in Salmel was I think the one of the first composers that uh, we can really call Cuban who had a uh, had a, a an unquestionably Cuban taste to his music, flavor to his music. Already the music could be distributed in Cuba. Already we're starting to have music engraving. We start to have, um, hang on just a second. I'm going to, I'm actually, this time I'm actually using my own book to prompt me um, because I feel like it's the, the uh, here we go. And I did write this stuff 20 years ago after all. So you'll pardon me if my recall isn't perfect. Um, here we go. The son of a Catalan immigrant and a man of modest financial means was an innovator who creolized the contradanza and composed piano works in various genres that were becoming important to Cuban identity. I think that says it pretty well. A less virtuous pianist than Gottschalk, Sommel was a classic exemplar of the Cuban confluence of the cultivated and vernacular. He played both Beethoven and popular dances and sometimes signed his work with the pen name El Timbalero. And Sommel seems to have been, he was good friends with Gottschalk, uh, and he seems to have been the one who tutored him in how they do it in Cuba. And his uh, Salmel's music is wonderful if you ever get a chance to hear his uh, contradances, and Cuban pianists do play them to this day. Um, as the, another of the composers Gottschalk befriended, Nicolas Espadero, was privately wealthy and was uh, kind of a kind of, uh, I don't know if you'd say he was a misanthrope as much or simply um, someone who agoraphobic, but he preferred to stay home with as many cats uh, than to be out in public. Uh, and of course, uh, he met and uh, tutored the young Jose White, uh, who composed the, one of the most famous Cuban tunes of the 19th century, La Bella Cubana and who uh, welcomed Gottschalk to Rio de Janeiro when uh, Gottschalk made his very last trip anywhere to the place where he would die uh, after conducting his Ode to Death. What a way to go. I guess it, it happens to everybody at some point. So, <laughs> Yeah, end, but uh, it happened to Gottschalk when he was 40. I think that was a little... Uh, I, I, I think we really should have had a little more of uh, Gottschalk. Imagine if he'd lived another 40 years. And, of course, there's one other very, very important composer, perhaps the best-known composer of the 19th century in Cuba, who was um, not really... Uh, well, he, was, he met... He met Gottschalk at the age of when he was six, Ignacio Cervantes. He was a, the younger generation than Gottschalk. But uh, when he was six in 1854, 
they brought in this uh, this piano prodigy to play for Gottschalk, and Cervantes composed his first danza at the age of 10. I think I misspoke earlier. I think I said that uh, Salmel was known for his danzas. It was, of course, contradances. Cervantes is the one, Ignacio Cervantes, not to be confused with the guy who wrote Don Quixote, uh, was the famous composer of the danza in Cuba. And he may have studied with Gottschalk. We don't really know briefly. And he went to Paris to study with Gottschalk's colleague Antoine Francois Marmontel. So Cervantes spent five years as a student in Paris, became friends with Saint-Saëns, with Rossini, with Liszt and uh, came back to Cuba in uh, 1870. And uh, his one daughter, Maria, they, they had uh, 11, his wife had 11 children, uh, only one of them a girl. And uh, of the four of the children who survived into adulthood, the girl was one of them. And she was the one who became a well-known uh, singer and concert pianist, Maria Cervantes. Hmm. Good to have good to have some spawn that uh, carried the torch for you. And so, in some, you've got you've got a list of bullet points on page one fifty five of the book, and we've covered most of them. There's only two points that we haven't really gone over in these last two episodes that I wanted to bring up. And one was the well established tradition of military wind bands playing regularly all across the length and breadth of Cuba. And the second is a thriving tradition of comic musical theater that had something in common with its American counterpart, the minstrel show. So tell us about the military bands and the minstrel show and Cuban music and how, you know, those two things become massive influences on 20th century American music with jazz being the heir of the military bands and Broadway being the heir of the minstrel show. How do those traditions play out in Cuban music, and are they going to be a big part of the mambo explosion and stuff that we see by mid-century? Yeah, we don't think of military bands as important um, sources of music today, really. Uh, We think of military bands as something very um, constrained, um, shall we say, but military bands were a major diffuser both of uh, music and of instruments. It's really hard to imagine um, the the acoustic music of the 20th century. I mean, pre-electronic. I'm talking about the instrumentarium of jazz, uh, which is uh, basically the residue of the military band, right? And much of the traditional pedagogy comes out of uh, military. What was developed in military bands? You didn't have an army without musicians you do, and musicians marched into battle um so with the end of the civil war of course um in the u.s uh a lot of instruments that had outlived their owners wound up on sale in the pawn shops especially in new orleans where many of the bands disbanded and so there were a lot of military band instruments available as uh the beginnings of jazz get going in cuba and in Puerto Rico, it should be said, uh, the two late colonial possessions of Spain. Spain occupied these two islands militarily, but 
the army didn't really have much to do. They sent a lot of military bands to keep the population entertained. So there were military bands all over Cuba, all over Puerto Rico. The musicians moonlighted playing dances as well. So there's a really, really strong tradition of wind playing, of, of brass and woodwinds in these two islands, which also uh, turns out to affect uh, jazz when... Uh, in the uh, 20th century, James Reese Europe famously goes to Puerto Rico to find players for his Hellfighters ensemble that will go with uh, the U.S. Army to France in World War One, including uh, Rafael Hernandez. Um, the this tr- this tradition is still with us today. Uh, you can and you can hear it uh, in. Uh, whether in jazz, you can hear it in the, all the uh, different musics that use brass instruments in Cuba and Puerto Rico. And, of course, military bands traveled around the world, the instruments being well-nigh indestructible, especially the brass ones. So it's a very interesting study to compare uh, what's been done with the military uh, band instrumentarium all across the world. But in particular, in Cuba, there was a very, very strong tradition of this. That's one. Okay, uh, the minstrel show, which is sort of the beginning of uh, showbiz in the U.S. with all the uh, rate, the problematics of the racism that it entails. This dovetails with a very, very old tradition in Cuba and in Spanish theater. Before that, uh, we can trace blackface. Uh, back to uh, in the 16th century in Spain, um, and of course, there's uh, in in England there was uh, Ben Jonson's The Mask of Blackness, at which the ladies of the court appeared in um, a kind of blackface. Uh, this is a this is a very old uh, practice, and minstrel groups did travel from the United States to Cuba. Absolutely they did. But they, where, they coinc- where they coincided and collided with uh, an old tradition from the Spanish comic theater of representing different ethnic groups and uh, certainly uh, of caricatures of black people. So this, this continues into the 20th century, famously... Um, and I should mention that uh, there's a reason that minstrel groups were popular over and above the uh, over and above the, the 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 problematic of the racism, as I already mentioned, uh, which was that the music the music had to have been interesting. The music we don't have recordings of these troops really, but uh, the uh, compared with the uh, the the uh, other music of the day, there was something even to this caricatured version of black music that uh, was exciting to people just as, you know, white kids playing black music in the era of rock and roll was still exciting to the people who bought those records. So there was there was something that made this music popular, right? And, uh, of course, famously or infamously or however you want to think of it, black people also, black performers also played in blackface or 
played in minstrel groups without necessarily even being in blackface. Uh, W.C. Handy, at the beginning of the 20th century, came to uh, Cuba with Mahara's Minstrels uh, as the band leader and um, heard, heard a music there that seems to have turned up later as he becomes the first person to introduce the Abanera rhythm into a jazz hit, you know, uh, first Memphis blues and then more strongly in St. Louis blues. Very little woman. Handy called the rhythm Tangana, but uh, he's, or as he put it uh, when he tried it out um, at the at the Black Amusement Park in uh, Memphis, um, the uh, the call of the blood was his phrase, uh, and oh, he seems to have been the call of the blood. Um, and he, he he found he thought that there was something in that rhythm that uh, African American dancers uh, instinctively responded to. I mean, that was the thinking of the day. He saw it as the call of the blood was actually the phrase he used, and um, he seems to have encountered this in Cuba. Well, we're bringing it all together, Ned. And, uh, and I might say they have continued to have blackface comedians um, in um, in white Cuban Miami up really until the present day almost. Uh, and they even had in uh, Havana, they even had blackface comedy on the radio, which might seem strange, but uh, the comedy, the uh, <clears throat> radio programs had a studio audience. Yeah, I mean, uh, that was one of the big biggest traditions of 20th century American, North American radio was, was Amos and Andy, uh, descendant of the minstrel show. But my guest has been Ned Sublet. The book is Cuba and its music from the first drums to the mambo. We've been talking about 19th century Cuba this time. And when he comes back, Ned, we're going to talk about Afro-Cuba and the various African influences that go to form the Cuban music of the 20th century. Thanks so much. Thank you, Nate. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes Peter Jacks to discuss his biography of Peter Asher, the man who went from British invasion artist to the most powerful producer-manager of the SoCal singer-songwriter era. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast. And you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheompodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 